0: Open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. The Old Testament passages that describe Christ's remarkable thoroughness and vividness about the crucifixion are found in two particular passages. Psalm 2 describes the crucifixion, and that was written a thousand years before Christ was born. And then the passage by Isaiah the prophet, the 53rd chapter we often refer to it, was written. 750 years before the time of Christ, long before he was born. So I think that these two passages, the one that we're looking at this morning, are some of the most outstanding examples of prophetic accuracy and scriptural infallibility. They underscore for us that the Word of God is unique amongst all the books in human history because it tells us history ahead of time a thousand years ahead of time there can be no doubt that when you read these chapters in isaiah chapter 53 there's no doubt that the person being described in this chapter of isaiah is the lord jesus christ matter of fact it is so vivid so accurate so historical that the Jewish synagogue in their scripture reading of the Old Testament skips over this section of scripture because it portrays Christ on the cross so clearly that they do not read it. We're gonna look at it here this morning, the Christ of the cross. And in a way, it's so clear that it hardly needs explanation, but we're gonna break it down and look at it in three sections. First of all, the Savior's person, And then second, the Savior's passion. And then the third idea is here in my notes, the Savior's purpose, okay? Why did he go through this? Let's kind of take it a section at a time. The Savior's person. Let's read the last three verses there of chapter 52 again and then talk about them. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, wisely. Jesus will be a wise person, the way he lives, and the way he taught. And he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. People marveled at Christ. Both his teaching, they said, no man spake like this man spoke. That was the people that were sent to arrest Christ, came back and reported to the Jewish authorities. We've never heard anyone teach like this. And it goes on to say, so his visage, his face His looks were so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many. As a result of his suffering, he shall sprinkle the nations. Kings will shut their mouth at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they will consider. Here he describes the Savior's person. In verse 13, his sovereignty. I think verses 13 through 15 are a summary and a preview of what we often refer to as the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. The humiliation is what, Philippians chapter two describes in Christ coming to this world, leaving heaven, donning human flesh, and then suffering ultimately in the death on the cross. That's referred to as his humiliation. His exaltation is what takes him to heaven and where he is now. So this is kind of a preview and a summary of his humiliation and exaltation of the servant. That's how he's described as the servant. Verse 13 describes our Savior's rule where he will receive international recognition. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Notice, by the way, there's three stages there in verse 13. He shall be exalted. That's speaking of his resurrection. No one has died, gone to hell and led captivity captive, he was exalted in his resurrection. So he's exalted at his resurrection. He is extolled at his ascension. Remember, the disciples watched him as he ascended from earth into heaven, and they marveled, the angels came and spoke to him. So he was extolled at his ascension, and he is lifted very high. His enthronement, that's where he is right now. Jesus is as high a position as anybody in the universe could be, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's enthroned in majesties on high. So verse 13 kind of captures those stages. Look at verse 14. It describes his agony, his agony. The visage of Christ was so marred that his humanness, his appearance as a man was unrecognizable due to the brutalities that preceded the crucifixion itself. And we can read about them in all four of the Gospels, but Matthew 26 and 27 described as He was beat with the cat of nine tails and the crown of thorns was pressed upon his head. Many times they had their teeth ripped out because that cat of nine tails encircled the body and tear the flesh away. Many times they were standing in a pool of blood Some of their organs would even be visible because their skin was torn off and their muscles exposed. Many times people didn't live past that stage in the process of the cat of nine tails and the beating that Jesus endured. So his face was bloodied and swollen. His body was swollen. What was not shredded, the agony, and that's why it says, we will be astonished. It says in verse 14, just as many were astonished at you. Literally, if we could transport ourselves back, we would be astonished to see what took place and what Jesus endured. We would be revolted. Matter of fact, I think we'd probably be nauseated, we would be sick to our stomach to realize the barbaric and cruel treatment that Jesus received at the hands of the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. So his sovereignty, verse 13, his agony, verse 14, verse 15, his victory, it it leaps ahead and describes his victory. So shall he sprinkle many nations. You know, the word nations refers to ethnos. Uh, uh, That's Greek, but the, the various people groups. He shall sprinkle many nations of nations that hear the gospel, the people that are saved from every nation, tribe, and tongue. His sprinkling connotes his priestly work. Remember at the temple, the priest would sprinkle the sacrifice. He would sprinkle the people, denoting the cleansing. So Jesus cleanses people who come to him via faith, by faith. His priestly work. Cleansing people who are evangelized. The people who hear the gospel and by faith and repentance respond to the gospel are sprinkled and made clean. And the Bible says the human leaders, look at verse 15 again. Human leaders, kings, will be speechless in awe of the once despised servant. That's what Psalm 2 describes. That their mouths will be stopped they will wonder how did they miss this in in their power and their administration and in the knowledge that was brought to them. How did they miss the savior of mankind? Well, someday that marred face is going to radiate with unspeakable glory kings will shut their mouths and those who've ignored him will be obliged to give him audience will be obliged to give him attention they will have to admit he is the savior of mankind he is the ruler of the universe he is god the bible says it this way in the new testament at the name of jesus every knee should bow every knee will bow At the name of Jesus, that every people group will bow. The white knee will bow, the black knee will bow, the brown knee will bow, the yellow knee will bow. Every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus, and every tongue will confess. Those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father, Philippians 2 says. So all will recognize at some point in history future that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and he conquered sin, death, and hell and he won a great victory. The Savior's person. Second, look at chapter 53, verses one through nine, describe the Savior's passion, his love and his suffering as a result of that love. The cross of Christ has always been a mystery. It's always been a mystery to the non believer. For some of us who were saved as adults, we truly wondered what's the big deal? What was the big deal about? a man dying on the cross, to the unsafe person, it is a mystery to the non-believer. In spite of these prophecies, what does he tell us? In spite of the prophecies that were unfolded hundreds and even a thousand years ahead of time, you can even go back to Genesis chapter three, the proto-evangelium where God promised a savior would come. In spite of all of the prophecies, only a few Only a few would recognize the servant when he appeared. That's why Isaiah says in verse 1 of chapter 53 Who has believed our report? Why don't people believe? The story, why don't they believe the message? Why don't they believe our report? And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? God has shown his power. The arm of the Lord has been revealed to mankind. God has shown that that he is the Lord and he is the only one worthy of worship. Why has no one believed? Why or why has so few believed, we would say? Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews they stumbled over it they rejected their messiah that's why 1 corinthians 123 says that jesus christ is a stumbling block to the jews and foolishness to the greeks or to the romans greeks the gentiles in other words they thought it was foolish that only criminals go to a cross only criminals pay for their crimes well, Jesus wasn't paying for any crime that he committed. He's paying for our crimes, as we well understand. But the point that Paul is making is there both Jews and Gentiles stumble over, reject, find it foolish. They laugh at the cross of Christ. And that's true in our world today. Even though we're coming up on the Easter season, there will be programs on TV and articles in magazines dismissing and dissing the cross of Christ and the redemption story that we proclaim at Easter. Who has believed our report? And to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed? That's all of mankind. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Savior's passion. First, the mystery about Christ's life. And the mystery about his death. In the first three verses, the way I'm breaking it down is the mystery about the life of Christ. Who has believed a report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up like a tender plant, like a budding plant coming out of the garden. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. Because that describes the landscape of Jewish religion, it was dry, it was barren, it was a baked hard landscape of unbelief. But Jesus appears to them as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief, we would say. And we hid or we turned away our faces from him. We didn't want to hear the message. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He tells us the mystery about Christ's life from heaven's perspective, the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world. He was like a tender plant, innocent, honest, a man of integrity, a man of compassion, a man who loved people where they were. He was a tender plant and a root out of dry ground. He stood out in the landscape of Jewish hard-heartedness and legalism. He stood out and God declared in the New Testament in Matthew 3:17 he says, "Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God loved this son if I could say it in human terms, I think God was baffled why everyone did love his son. Amid the barrenness of legalistic Judaism and the hopelessness of paganism, he appears and he was divine light and life and love. But unregenerate man couldn't see that. Unregenerate man sees no beauty in Christ. Because of their sinful attitude, because of our sinful attitude, what does the Bible say? The response of unregenerate man is they hid, they turned their faces from him. We don't want to hear of Christ. We don't want to see Christ. Don't bring up Christ. Don't bring up what he did for us. They turned their faces from him and did not esteem him. That's the idea. They did not value. They did not understand the worth of what Christ did has done in their behalf. They did not value his life or his death. And so they despised, it says in verses two and three, and rejected him. That's the history of mankind. He came unto his own. What does the verse go on to say? And his own received him not. Of course, that's speaking of the Jewish nation, but it's speaking of all of us because we're all, god's children not necessarily born again but we're all the creatures of god he came unto his own people the people he created and they received him not that is still true today our savior is despised and rejected and people turn away from him well not only the mystery about his life but the mystery about the death of christ is mentioned in verses four through nine let's review those verses surely because this gets to the heart of the gospel this gets to the message of redemption of atonement surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried away our sorrows he's carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, following his own path. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He experienced both of those. And who will declare his generation? Well, that's what we're doing right now. Who will declare his posterity? And it goes on to say, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He had no descendants. Christ was never married. He never bore children in the physical sense. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence and nor was any deceit in his mouth. The mystery about Christ's death. If people find the life of Christ hard to understand, they're really confounded when it comes to his death. They don't understand it. When it comes to his death, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, they cannot grasp the purpose of the cross. So when we preach the cross... When we preach substitutionary atonement, people don't get it unless the Holy Spirit opens their eye, opens their mind to this truth because it's alien to our natural way of thinking. So we have to pray, God, open the eyes of the law. God, open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind that they would understand the mystery, not only of Christ's life, but the mystery of his death with all the mysteriousness and the violent, and we use the word, and it's a theological word, vicarious death of Christ. That's taking the place of another. Through the violent and vicarious death of Christ, it is the answer to man's basic need. Man's basic need, man's greatest need is the purpose of the cross because it deals with our sin problem. It deals with full and free redemption. That's our greatest need is to be redeemed. And that's what the cross deals with. Look at verses four and five. Christ suffered in our place, it's telling us. And this gets to the heart of the passage and it gets to the heart of the atonement the heart of this prophecy, Christ suffered in our place. It says, surely he hath borne our griefs. Who doesn't have grief? And he's carried our sorrows. Who doesn't have sorrows? Every man that's born into the world, every man, woman, and child born into the world has griefs and sorrows. And some translations translate grief as the word sickness or diseases. And it's it's applicable And probably an accurate translation. He has borne away our grief. He's borne away our sicknesses and diseases. By the way, all sickness is a result of sin. If Adam hadn't sinned in the garden, there would be no sickness. And when sickness is removed from mankind in heaven, there will be no grief. There will be no sorrow because sin is no more. So he has borne our griefs, our sicknesses, our diseases, and that's all a result of sin. Mankind's moral sickness was borne on and borne away by our Savior. He carried it away. And we live in a sick society, we say, and that's evident. Just in the last few weeks, our state, our elected officials, have passed a law that they can murder children all the way up until the day of birth. There are two states that are considering allowing parents to murder their children 28 days after birth. We find that hasn't happened in the history of the world since the Roman Empire. But that's the degradation of our society, that we can kill children. We know what's going on in our society. We all know what's going on in our society where men are saying, I decide to be a woman and I'm gonna compete as a woman. And the whole trans movement, the whole corruption of the nature of man where everything is so twisted and so perverted that people are boycotting Florida, Because the governor signed into a law that was popular with the people and passed by the legislation that you can't teach children about perversion of sex in grades K through three. Listen, it wasn't that long ago you arrested people for doing that. You arrested people for teaching children about that kind of perversion. We called them perverts but that's what's going on in our country. That's what's going on, maybe not worldwide, but that's certainly what's going on in our country. Yes, we live in a sin-sick society. There is a moral sickness that Jesus bore away, was laid upon him. But praise God, through the cross of Christ, there is healing. And that's what this text is about. There is healing. When General William booth you probably recognize that name he was the founder of the salvation army when the salvation army was founded it was a gospel preaching evangelistic organization it was a church and it's founded in england but it spread here to america today it's a philanthropic or a social organization they do good but they're not proclaiming the gospel anymore they've lost that okay but in that day General William Booth was the founder and he was an evangelist and the founder of the Salvation Army. When he died, because he had had such a great impact upon England and America and even Europe, when he died, his body was laid in state for three days. Thousands filed by the old warrior's casket, which was ranked by wreaths that were sent from royalty and heads of state all over the world. His funeral was held at a huge exhibition hall in London, and it was attended by, get this, 40,000 people. This gospel preacher representing every strata stratum of society from aristocrats to moral outcasts were in attendance. All people that he had ministered to. A former prostitute was standing near Queen Mary who was in attendance at the funeral. And as the casket filed by, as the funeral bier passed by, the former prostitute said this, he cared for the likes of us because he reached the down and outers in London's dark side of town as well as around the world. She said he cared for the likes of us and Queen Mary heard her say that. What an epitaph for the general. But even more than that, what an epitaph for the Lord whom he preached. He proclaimed the gospel that Jesus died for sinners. And the worst of sinners were saved under his preaching. And it impacted England. It impacted the world. This gospel message that we find in Isaiah chapter 53. The Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. Only at Calvary are mankind's sorrows borne away and replaced with joy. And if you don't have the joy of the Lord today, maybe you need to do some spiritual introspection and evaluation. Verse 5 clearly declares the substitutionary work of Christ. Look at it again. Look at verse 5. Vicariously or in our place, he was pierced for our transgressions; He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. He was lacerated for our healing. He received all of that so we might have this free and complete salvation that he offers to us so christ suffered in our place in verses six through eight christ died for our sins he died for our sins let's read these all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way is that not true of all of us We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off, he was killed. Taken from the land of the living for our transgressions. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. So he dies with two criminals on each side of him. But it goes on to say, just as we know from history, but with the rich at his death. He was buried in a rich man's tomb because he had done no violence, nor was deceit in his mouth. Individually and corporately, we all stray just like sheep. We tend to wander from the truth. We tend to wander from our Lord. But Christ has come to seek and to save that which is law. Luke 19.10 tells us that he's come to seek the lost sheep and to save the lost sheep, to bring them unto himself. We read that he was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was imprisoned. He was stricken. He was killed. He was entombed. Yet he faced it all speechless. He didn't protest. He didn't say, I'm innocent. And he was. He didn't say, this is unfair. And it was. He didn't say, I'm undeserving of what's taking place here. And he was. He just took it. Knowing that he was dying for your sins and for mine. The Bible says, he opened not his mouth as a lamb before the slaughter. He was led to the cross. In Christ, God's wrath was spent. And his justice was satisfied. That's an important aspect of the atonement. God must punish sin. His holiness demands that sin must be punished, that criminals must suffer. So God's wrath was satisfied in Christ. He poured out his wrath upon Jesus Christ. And his justice was satisfied when he looked upon Christ on the cross. The holy dying for the unholy, the just for the unjust, his justice was satisfied. It completed the plan of God. No man could have dreamed up, could have imagined a plan that would satisfy God's wrath and God's justice. Only God could invent that and only God could implement that. And he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus nailed to a cross unjustly but in our stead and then he dies and he goes to the tomb and he's raised on the third day as you and i will know and when god raised jesus from the dead he raised him up from the dead why didn't he fix him up why didn't he fix him up so that jesus looks as good as he did when he began his ministry But when he appears to his disciples, they recognize him because of the nail prints in his, the holes in his hand where the nails were put through. And and he shows to Thomas the spear point in his side. When God raised him up, why didn't he fix him up? Have you ever thought about that? Why the visible scars and why the nail prints that exist throughout eternity? Why? The resurrected Christ will forever bear his wounds. Throughout eternity, we will look upon him whom we have pierced. We will always remember his sacrifice and his suffering in our behalf. We will constantly be reminded when we're with Christ that those wounds of love will remind us of what he's done in our behalf. Although he was not bound by death, He scarred for eternity. And in heaven, all of us will be made perfect. There's not a perfect person here today, physically or spiritually. And in heaven, all of us will be made perfect. There are people with replaced knees and people with replaced hips and people that are nearly blind and people with terrible cataracts or retina problems or or, uh, uh, replaced shoulders or whatever it might be. And they limp or they struggle or they're limited. In heaven, all of that will be gone. All of us who are imperfect will someday be perfect, perfect. But the only one who was ever perfect will be imperfect. The only one who ever existed eternally with perfection will live throughout eternity with the physical imperfections that he received on the cross on our behalf. He'll be a standout in heaven, that's for sure. His imperfections will remind us forever what he did in our behalf. The epitome of perfection will be imperfect. Jesus Christ, the son of God. Third and finally, the savior's purpose in verses 10 through 12. Why all of this? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, it says in verse 10. These words may appear sadistic, until they're interpreted theologically, until they're interpreted by the last three verses of this text, really. Who takes delight? Who is pleased to see others suffer? We call that sadism. But God is no sadist. God had to do this to his Son. He had to take Jesus to the cross, allow him to suffer, and allow him to die so that he would be pleased that many of his sons would come into the kingdom. Sinners will find redemption, verses 10 and 11. It says here, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, how could it be any clearer? His soul is an offering for sin. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his day. Jesus Christ had no physical seed, but were his spiritual seed, he will prolong his day. Jesus is gonna live throughout eternity. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his day, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He says in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he takes pleasure in what has taken place. Why? Because it fulfilled, it completed the plan of redemption. Sinners will find redemption in pouring out his soul as an offering for sin. The Lord Jesus is the Christian's Passover. And that's where First Corinthians five seven says. In the old testament, they sacrificed the lamb, it covered their sin for a year. But Jesus Christ is the Christian's Passover. He covers our sins permanently. We'll never answer for our sins if we come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Our sins are washed away, the Bible says. To see his offspring, the servant would have to rise from the dead. People who are dead don't see their offspring. Jesus would have to rise from the dead to see his offspring. And as we well know, he does. The Savior has seen the fruit of his death in millions and millions of spiritual descendants. There's, there's a billion professing Christians today of all stripes. We would say not all of them are true believers. But there's a billion professing Christians in the world today. And heaven is going to be populated Heaven is going to be filled with redeemed men and women because of the victory of Calvary. If anyone gets to heaven, it's because of what Jesus did on the cross and his death on Calvary. If any of us get there, it's because of that work. The Savior has seen the fruit of his labors. Notice what it says here. It says, through Divine knowledge. When I've read this verse in the past, I thought it was, look at verse 11. He shall see his labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. I always thought when I read that, well, that's a knowledge of what he did in my behalf. That's a knowledge of the plan of redemption. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the knowledge that Christ has. That's what it's describing. Through divine knowledge, through the plan of God in eternity past, through the plan of redemption that was concocted in eons and eons before man was ever dreamt up, through this divine knowledge, Jesus knew how to justify sinners and accomplish mankind's redemption. And he executed that plan. He followed through with that divine knowledge and fulfilled it to its fullest yes, it is a knowledge. Salvation is a knowledge of what God has done on our behalf. But that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about the knowledge that Christ had in fulfilling the plan of redemption. Sinners will find redemption, verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 12. The Savior will be rewarded. The servant's reward will be what he says here. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with a great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Spoil is the booty of the victory. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he shall be numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession. The servant's reward will be to enjoy the spoils of his spiritual victories throughout eternity. He will be enjoying those who are redeemed throughout eternity. Jesus assumed his role among sinful human beings when crucified with two criminals. That's what it's referring to there, his death with the criminals, and now he intercedes in heaven. By the way, Jesus started his office of intercession while he was on the cross. We think of him interceding for us in heaven, and he is. That's one of his main works right now is his priestly intercession in heaven. But he started that work on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. And he said to the thief, this day shall you be with me in paradise. He started his intercessory priestly work while he was on the cross, and it's being fulfilled right now in heaven. The Lord Jesus has overcome principalities and powers and now as what sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews chapter one, verse three. He won the victory over the world, the flesh and the devil and now he's entered into heaven in his reward. And we share in that victory beyond comprehension but we share in that victory. We share in that victory here on earth But someday, one day, in a much greater fullness, we will reign with him in glory, the Bible says. As we are faithful to him, fulfilling his will for our lives, we will reign with him in glory. Sinners now reigning with the Savior. He died for us. He saw value in your soul. How much is a human being worth? We're told that the chemical composition in our bodies has enough iron to make up a nail, enough sugar to fill a sugar bowl, and enough fat for seven bars of soap. And I realize that could vary from person to person here. And enough lime to whitewash a couple of walls, enough phosphorus for 200 match heads, enough magnesium for a good dose of laxative, and all totaled is probably valued as somewhere around $10. 10 bucks So somebody said, well, what are you worth? I mean, really, if you're talking about elements, you're worth about $10. That's nothing compared to an African diamond mine. That's nothing compared to an Arabian oil field. But we don't base our value, our worth, not on the elements in our body. By the way, nor by the talents that we possess or the commodities that we own. That's not how we base our worth. God bases our worth in the fact that we have an eternal soul that will live somewhere forever. And He died to redeem that soul. That's how much you mean to God. That's your worth in God's sake. Anybody struggling with, with self-worth today? You shouldn't, if you're a Christian. Because your identity is in Christ. Your worth is in the fact that Jesus died to redeem you. You're of great worth in God's sight. You are valuable. A soul that will live somewhere for eternity. So I ask you, have you entrusted your soul to him? Have you entrusted your soul to him? I know most of the people here today, but I can't say I know every person represented here today. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior. You can know him today. You can settle your soul's eternal destiny today. Let's bow our heads. Father, we bow before you and we are in awe. We're nonplussed. We're almost speechless in trying to describe what you've done in our behalf. And oh Lord, if there was someone in this service or someone listening to my voice that doesn't know you as Savior, may today be the day they cast their sins upon you. You who bore our sorrows, our sins, our grief, our sickness away. May they cast their sins upon you and may they embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's my prayer, and it's your desire, and we ask it in your dear son's name, amen.